Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Evan Clark and a new member of the book club, recruited from the awesome comics podcast Slack group. Uh, it's a very warm welcome to Jordan Thomas. Jordan, hello. Hey, man. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Thank you for giving me your time to talk about some uh, 2000 AD. Let's get uh, to know you by learning a bit about your 2000 AD origin story. When did you discover uh, The Galaxy's Greatest? So as a kid, like, although I'm kind of big into comics now, I didn't like read comics really so much as a kid. I had um, trading card sets. So I, I live, come from a little village near to Brighton and my dad used to take me most weekends and we'd go to, well, it was Dave's books at the time. Now there's Dave's books and comics and we'd get lots of different trading card sets. So I definitely had like some 2000 AD trading card sets, a lot of Judge Dredd stuff. I remember having the, like the Judge Dredd Batman crossover in some cards. And I also definitely had one of the annuals. I think it's the 1986 2000 AD annual. Oh, right. That's like the first kind of actual comic version of 2000 AD that I remember owning. I just really remember the cover. It's got like a bunch of the characters kind of all hanging out together on the cover. Very cool. And what was your first actual comics that you started reading? So I had kind of, I had like, Bits and pieces that I think, like, I think I bought those ones uh, that had um, the X-Men with the the kind of 3D stickers on the front. But I think I mostly bought them for the 3D stickers. But the first <laughs> thing that really got me, like, with a pull list, like, actually looking forward to getting the next issue each time was um, 1602, the Neil Gaiman and um, uh, Andy Kubert book. Is it yes. Andy Kubert? Andy yeah. Kubert. It's certainly a Neil Gaiman. I think it is the Cuberts, yes. Uh, it's definitely a Cubert. It's always remembering which of, yeah. <laughs> the, which of the two Cuberts it is. It's the really good Cubert. There's right. a quite good Cubert and a really good Cubert. And it's the really good Cubert. Okay. And Glenn uh, Fabry, how did you discover his comics? So my favourite like ongoing series of all time is Hellblazer. Right. So... Obviously, like knowing Glenn from those covers, like I fell in love with those covers as like a teenager and then like moved on to Preacher and things. But yeah, I didn't have a lot of experience of Glenn as an interiors artist until recently. He was kind of always the the king of covers for me. Yes, I mean, he did. I mean, obviously, as you say, all those great covers for Hellblazer and then for uh, Preacher. Okay, well, let's get to it. Tell us what book you've chosen to come on the book club with. So today, Eamon, I feel like I'm like on stars in their eyes or yeah. something. Going to come out of the, the misty, misty doorway. We're doing Slain Demon Killer. Great stuff. So this collects stories, I think, from the 2080 yearbook from 1991 and Progs 850 to 896 from 1993 to 94. It's all written by Pat Mills, obviously. Glenn Fabry we're going to talk about, but there's also art by Dermot Power. Uh, Greg Staples and Nick Percival. And then there's the slightly strange David Lloyd um, Cauldron of Blood gaming part in black and white at the back of the collection, which came from a slain gaming book, which I don't think I ever had or was aware of. Um, lettered throughout by Steve Potter and Gordon Robson, and of course, editor at the time. Um, actually, it probably wasn't Steve McManus at this point, was it? It was probably David Bishop uh, by then. Yeah, I think that on the book that I've got, it says original commissioning editor, Steve McManus. Right. But I don't know if that's to do with the collection as opposed to the actual 
issues themselves. So why did you uh, choose this particular one from the uh, Slain work and Glenn Fabry and so on? Uh, well, so I've kind of been on my own little Slain journey, nicely accompanied by, by you and your, your various um, co-hosts over the last like six months or so. Right. And I'd read through everything leading up to this. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess this kind of feels like the the last of the really key kind of slain books like when you're thinking of what's the most popular stuff what's kind of uh i'm not going to say high point because i haven't read all of the stuff afterwards but like when it was maybe at its its most kind of popular i'd say this is kind of towards the end of that kind of coming after the horned god right and this as you say this comes after the horned god it's the fifth collection in the series after warrior's dawn Time Killer and the King and the Horn God, all of the, the last three we've done on the book club, as you say. So it's after, obviously, Bisley and the Horn God. Um, there's been a little bit of a gap. Um, they're keen to bring Slain back to the pages of 2000 AD. What's the story, um, you know, the sort of like synopsis of Demon Killer um, that happens in this collection we've been reading? Well, we kick off with a bit of a, a kind of a quick one and done where Slain, I guess, following the Horned God is uh, just kind of the king now and is a little bit bored. He's hanging out with um, some of his warrior mates, but they're, they're not allowed to blemish him. He's not allowed to suffer any kind of injury. So he's just kind of trying to goad everybody into fighting him because he's bored, which is quite a fun part. Uh, but then, as that would not be the most exciting slain story, he kind of finds out that the the goddess needs him back for one of his biggest and bloodiest battles yet, which obviously is great news for slain. He's over the moon, moon with that. And yeah, I guess that's the main part. We have the the jealousy of Neve story, where um, slain and his wife Neve get tied to a tree for a bit and fight a baboon which is an interesting um, <laughs> sidestep for a moment. But, uh, yeah, the, mo- the main part is Demon Killer, where um, Slain is transported to the time of the kind of Roman invasion of Britain, and he's with Boudicca, who I struggle a little bit sometimes trying to keep who there's the goddess and there's the Boudicca's kind of the goddess in human form, or she's like a representative of the goddess on Earth. But Boudicca's kind of a, a badass... Um, Celt woman and Slain joins up with her to fight the Romans and their quite uh, unpleasant friend Elphick, the the demon, I guess, of the demon killer naming. Yes, Elphick is back again and uh, yes, a time travelling, another time travelling adventure for Slain. It's quite convenient in a way that the goddess will transport him through time so that uh, Pat Mills and his artists can explore other eras to have Slain <laughs> turn up in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if the goddess worships anything herself, it's definitely sales. She's, right. Uh, she's big on sales. <laughs> <laughs> so um, They'd have a bit of trouble without that, I think. Yeah. So I've been reading Kiss My Axe, um, which we'll talk about a little bit as we go along, which is Pat Mills' latest, currently it's an e-book, um, and it's his latest sort of account of the creation of Slain and its various eras, various you know stories and um, on-off different artists over the period. And 
Again, he did say in the book that there was quite a lot of pressure for them to bring back Slane. Horn God, you know, famously blows the doors off British comic book art um, and was such a huge success. There was obviously some pressure to bring it back. Bisley, by this time, I guess, is probably already gone to DC and working for DC Comics. Um, I think he's probably in hibernation after the Horned God. <laughs> Bisley, I think, has to go and uh, climb under a mound of bracken yes. and, uh, and damp leaves and sleep for like a couple of years after after completing a few issues. I can imagine that would be after you know completing something like the Horned God. Yeah, yeah. And I know Pat Mills speaks about the Demon Killer story that he was interested in the. Uh, it's Colchester was his hometown and the Roman occupation of Colchester and then Boudicca's sort of attack on uh, the Roman fortress and destruction of it. Um, does it, you know, does it does it sort of seem to work as a device to bring back Slain and put Slain into a new area of conflict? Because as you say, he's a little bit bored as the king, isn't he, when nobody can touch him? Yeah, I mean, it definitely works as a device, as I guess, um, despite it all being quite fantastical with the Slain series, um, I think Pat seems to kind of like to have some kind of basis on at least old myth or some historical setting rather than completely made up stories, apart from maybe when Slain goes into like space and fights those space creatures for a bit. I don't know if that's uh, based on any kind of story of record, but um, yeah. Yeah, it definitely works as a setting and a way to kind of keep Slain involved in kind of big battles. I think, uh, I don't know if we're getting, if I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I think I found, like I read around a lot of this afterwards and it's really interesting, but I don't know if they successfully get across all of that in the story itself. Maybe it's a bit rushed at points and they're not, they're not fully kind of explaining the stakes at certain points. You don't totally understand what everything is. Like you've got different goddesses and you've got witches and you've got this and demons. And maybe it could have done with a little bit more laying the groundwork as to what was going on, as opposed to kind of a couple of pages of uh, information dump and then slaying kind of just chopping up people for the rest of the issue. Yes, and there is a fair bit of Slane doing what Slane does so well, you know, um, massive destruction of the opposing troops, and he doesn't think it too many, etc. Um, mm. So that stuff is all great. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of like, you know, just say that Pat uh, always does this, but he does have, obviously, we all know Uncle Pat has strong views about authority figures about imperialism and the roman occupiers of britain at this point sort of make perfect foils for him in a way to discuss some of this stuff uh that he he always likes to talk about and of course they're, they're led by the demon elfric as well so you know yeah i just noticed that it's um there's a certain amount of uncle patism isn't there in there isn't there <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you say Uncle Pat has strong views on imperialism and conquest. I'd say Uncle Pat just has strong views in yes, general. You probably, probably yeah. stop, <laughs> stop at that. Um, but yeah, no, definitely he had something he wanted to get across here. And I think in um, in the section in the Slain Kiss My Axe book he's recently released, he kind of talks about that and the idea of that the Romans have kind of been painted as this 
almost benevolent force that came to these barbarian inhabitants of Britain and and kind of in, like uh, very quickly increased us to kind of better technology and ways of living and being more civilized. And that's kind of the narrative. And Uncle Pat definitely fights against that narrative. And you have a few characters, mostly, I guess, in, in Boudicca, who I guess is kind of a voice for, for Uncle Pat, although I think maybe Uncle Pat might be descended from Boudicca based on their sharing of, of views. And if you um, you check out some of her speeches before they went into battle, you could definitely see uh, that being in a, a Pat Mills slain book. Yes, you can. This is true. And, you know, with his writing, you mentioned the odd sequence with them tied to a tree and being attacked by a weird baboon creature. Um, there's some various sort of Celtic stuff about... Uh, the rituals of the king, and then also later on the witches, the goddess, serpents, and so on. Um, is this as ever, is this as Pat tapping into that rich Celtic mythology that he loves to explore and work into the stories of Slain? Well, the thing that I found super interesting, actually, that I only got round to after actually reading the book, is how much of it is all like actual history. Obviously, he's throwing in kind of some demons and he's he's maybe you can kind of look on a lot of like the D of Elphic and when the dragon appears and things like that as kind of being metaphors in terms of how much of actually what happens is historical, like the Boudicca led rebellion against the, the Romans is all true. The destruction of the temple that we see happening in this. Like so, so he's tapping into some mythic things with kind of the, the talk of goddesses and things. But in general, it's actually like it was. I was shocked at how tied to actual history it is. Right, and I know um, is what is the the big structure because we don't get the Wicker Man, although the Wicker Man is mentioned. But there's the big structure. Is it the Bone Temple? That gets yeah the mausoleum of bones or yes something like that yeah and that comes in and again as you say that was based on uh, you know actual stories and uh, is an actual thing mm-hmm. apparently that that Pat read about and worked into this story so he always you know he's so good at bringing us bits of history and mythology and um, incorporating them in these stories is it. You know, again, I suppose there's the familiar Slain and Ucko stuff in there as well, Slain and Neve, Slain and the Goddess. Um, some of that stuff felt like, particularly the Ucko stuff, you get the light comic relief before he goes into battle. There's always the usual threats about what they're going to do to Ucko, um, which is quite amusing stuff. And then... It all happens. The action happens. There's plenty of salmon leaps and warp spasms and so on. Um, I suppose it's some of the familiar beats, but in a new, a new era for Slain. You know, the advantage of the Roman, uh, the Roman invaders to him to talk about. Did you enjoy the stuff with Ucko and all that as well? Um, well, Ucko is like my favourite part of Slain oh, in general. <laughs> like I always love all of the Ucko stuff. Um, yeah, so we, you know, often when you're reading something and you've got all the action going on and you cut away to something else, it can be a bit irritating. And you're like, oh God, we've got to go off and see this dry character in 
whatever Game of Thrones or whatever you're reading. But with Ucko, it's always, yeah, often my favorite parts. The bits where he's doing the narration, where you kind of go and see him writing the book and you you go from from him kind of writing into the narration, but the parts where uh, it doesn't happen exactly. They have the part at the beginning of this where he's he just wants to get off to the pub, so he tries to kind of wrap it all up without writing this one, and he gets uh, choked by the... Um, the kind of band he wears around his neck, which is quite good. But I, I always love the bits where uh, Nest has to come in and say, uh, and at this point, uh, Ucko goes on a completely unnecessary and uh, grotesque description of the female's body, which we've decided to edit out for the uh, enjoyment of everyone else and those kind of moments. They're, they're often my, uh, my favourite bits. Like, I think even in the first, um, the annual story, when... They find out that Slane's going to be going off for a big new battle. The final panel is Ucko trying to get the possessed dead body to come back to life to to give him some more information from beyond the grave that he wants. And he he says, uh, Quan, wake up. Tell me the secrets of the dead. Where have the druids hidden the gold? How do I make Deirdre the Ice Maiden into Deirdre the Willing? Quan, Quan. And like again, that's probably my favourite panel in the whole of that first story. Yeah, always great stuff. And as you say, I do love a bit where they actually have Ucko's recollections have been edited as well because at this point it becomes too gross or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me turn you to the beautiful artwork. Um, we'll get to Glenn Fabry in just a second. We've got, uh, there's a, I think, the Jealousy of Neve, there's Greg Staples and Nick Percival. What did you make of that one to begin with? So that one... I think it's the second page is absolutely beautiful. The one where he's kind of leaping across, where Slane is leaping across with um, with Brainbiter and lopping off some heads, and there's a bunch of goblins underneath him. But overall, I don't know if it's the printing of the one that I have, but it's very dark. It is dark it's and muddy, muddy, isn't it? A lot of the colours. Yeah. Yeah, and also the, the further you go through, the more the kind of faces deteriorate. To the point where um, you kind of so when he's fighting the baboon, there's like a page where he's shouting "I'm free," and that looks kind of like what if Slain had sat down at one of those caricaturists on Brighton Pier. Oh yeah, had them draw him. Yeah, it looks a bit kind of like that, and the face is like on the final page, like it, the style just looks completely different on that final page. With um, with Neve and Slane walking away after the baboon adventures, com- compared to how it started, where the detail was really beautiful. So, yeah, not um, obviously. I'm always impressed by any kind of painting like this, but I don't think it's the strongest. Apart from that, really gorgeous kind of splash page image at the beginning. Okay, I mean, we'll perhaps talk about painted art, fully painted artwork, and as you approach the end of a strip and deadlines in a moment. Okay, so I think one of the the main things to talk about is Glenn Fabry, and if we start with the High King story at the start of the book, now this one I thought was interesting because uh, you know, as we say, it's fully painted, but it's. It, this is the one that's done in a sort of grayscale in my um, in my reproduction here. Is that that that's what you found as well? Yeah, that's what I've got, and I did think it was a strange choice because there's some absolutely beautiful art in here. Like Glenn's going absolutely to town 
on the facial expressions and the muscle definition like pretty much every one of these characters has has kind of done full daily workouts in the gym <laughs> leading up to the story um but yeah i did find it odd that they chose to to just color it in the in the gray tone because it does kind of i guess it makes it a bit so it doesn't pick pick out the images as well for me personally like it maybe makes you have to stop and really look at stuff properly but yeah i do i do feel like you lose a little something by not having it fully colored although i quite enjoyed i don't know if you know this i, I think i'm getting this right glenn told me that um the character what's his name uh colonel the Hans- hansen oh is yes. based on vanilla ice yes <laughs> is that famous knowledge yeah yeah, oh, well, no, I didn't know that, that but I'm looking vanilla at that. getting punched in the face. Yeah, I'm looking at the page now and seeing Vanilla Ice now. And we, yes, I know that Glenn yeah. does take faces from uh, uh, either famous people or friends and family and work them in, doesn't he? So, yes, I can see Vanilla Ice. Yeah. Now. Yeah, I think he just wanted to punch Vanilla Ice in the face, I think, was the, <laughs> <laughs> was the main point of that. Okay, and it, so. I almost got the feeling that it was meant to be a little bit like a flashback sequence with the blues and the greys before we get to the full colour explosion of Demon Killer slightly later on in the book, um, where all the action... I mean, there's the, there is action in the first story, but the full action is going to come later on, um, literally from the open page, opening page of Demon Killer. So, yeah, it's interesting choices about the blues and the greys. I think that you're right in that it is kind of intended to separate it out as a separate story to to Demon Killer. But yeah, you do just look through some of the art, the the weird, the body brought back to life with the guts hanging out and then that other splash page of um, of the Mighty Warrior Queen. Like, it's amazing stuff. And yeah, I, I would have quite liked to have seen it maybe with a, with a bit more of a wide colour palette. So let's let's jump then to the middle of the book and to Demon Killer itself. And it is uh, slain versus the Romans with Boudicca uh, or the Caesareans, as he, I think he refers to them. And this is where we get the explosion of Glenn Fabry's fully painted artwork. And probably, I'm going to say, possibly peak Glenn Fabry on Slain. Um, what did you think of this artwork? I, I mean, yeah, this stuff's incredible. I think we'll probably get to talking about maybe where deadlines start to impede on it a little bit kind of towards the end. But yeah, I mean, the first kind of, at least the first half of of all of Glenn's stuff in Demon Kill is amazing. I know in the Kiss My Axe book, uh, Pat mentions that perhaps the colours are a little bit too kind of wild. I can't I think maybe Technicolor or something he uses. The, I think that's the, the expression word for, he uses, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's a way to kind of because again, probably if I had a complaint about the horned god artwork, it's that sometimes it's very dark, and considering the time and the kind of the beautiful technique involved in it, it does feel a bit of a shame to kind of lose out on, especially some background detail, just because the the coloring choices and then once stuff's kind of printed back in those times, they perhaps couldn't get the kind of the darker nuances. Whereas this, you're really seeing everything because it's such a explosion of... I mean, it's a bit like a slain LSD dream or something. Yes, it is, isn't it? 
Yeah, there, I mean, as you say, we do get full explosion of uh, of colour. Um, and Pat did mention at the times he felt it was a bit technical, I guess, for his his own intentions. But it does give Glenn the full workout, and we get to see his wonderful anatomy. I think sometimes you've probably seen this with, you know, uh, when artists start out on 2000 AD, sometimes anatomy is not quite right. And then they get to a stage where it's just perfection. And I think here Glenn's work Mm. is just perfect. And the, the artwork, the painting, the colors, I actually really enjoyed this section of the book. I loved it. Oh yeah. It's incredible. This, I mean, Glenn's absolutely firing on all cylinders here. I mean, some of the, uh, it's pretty, it's like, um, for me, I, just think that Glenn's face, facial kind of the expressions that he gives Slane and the look on it on his face in those kind of close-up panels is for me just the quintessential Slane. Yeah, he just gives this snarl and this character that just kind of comes like uh, I don't have page numbers in mind, but there's a there's a page when he's just starting to kill the Romans. And he's doing a bit, there's a bit of a weird kind of, he's in action kind of pose and his hair's kind of looks like he's got a hairdryer on it and there's a red smudge down the page. But the the facial close-up on the right side of that page where he does his, I didn't think it too many, just is fantastic. Like there's so much personality and character coming off that piece, if you know the one I'm talking about. I'm looking at it now, George, and it's got that sort of characteristic Glenn Fabry sort of snarl, raised lip possibly slightly Billy Idol, which is dating me, um, sort of a look. Mm. Well, no, I think that's who he based it on, wasn't it? That's correct. Is that right? I think um, Glenn based uh, Billy Idol and maybe Jack Nicholson. Right. Yes, I can see that as well. I think it was his combination of of people that – well, I was, uh, without being too name-droppy, I spent like five days with Glenn a few weeks ago at a convention um, in the north of Spain, and I knew I was coming on to do this, so I was asking him some questions about it. And, yeah, he he said that his slain's kind of a, a combo of Billy Idol and Jack Nicholson. Oh, right. And how did you come to be to get into contact with Glenn um, and to be, you know, working with him at the convention? Uh, it's quite random, really. Uh, back when the the pandemic first started and we were all in lockdown, so I'm in the south of Spain in Granada, and I know uh, in the UK everything was always a little bit kind of wishy-washy <laughs> with the rules and how much you were allowed to go out and like hours out of the house for exercise. In Spain, it was very much like you stay inside unless you're going to get food or medicine and if so, only like one member of your household is allowed to go. And I don't know how familiar you are with Spain, but if you've ever come across the Guardia Civil who kind of come in when when they're really trying to impose rules, then you do tend to follow those rules. So at the start of the pandemic, I was very much just in the apartment, pretty much um, apart from three hours a week, maybe. So I started to do a comic that I put together called Quarantine, where um, I had a different artist drawing every page of the story, and we ended up getting a cover by Derek Robertson. And in my eternal attempts to try and sell more copies of it, I went around looking for the Derek Robertson hashtag on Instagram 
And anyone who kind of posted stuff about Derek Robertson, I complimented them on their work and then said, oh, and by the way, here's a comic I've got out right now on Kickstarter with a Derek Robertson cover. And one of the people I um, contacted was a, was a colorist who had done a nice uh, job on a Derek Judge Dredd kind of bust. And we started chatting a little bit and she explained to me that she'd only just started working as a colorist, like she was still learning and stuff, but that her partner was Glenn Fabry. So she gets a lot of advice. And then me sat there at home in the apartment. I was like, you mean like Hellblazer, Glenn Fabry? She's like, oh, yeah, he, oh, he really likes that you said Hellblazer because they're his favorite colors, uh, co- covers as people normally reference uh, Preacher. Uh, and, yes, yeah, so we just kind of – I spent, like, a couple of hours just chatting on DM with uh, with Karen, Glenn's uh, lovely fiance, and Glenn through Karen asking him various questions. And, yeah, we just kind of became friends from there. And um, I guess I helped them with some kind of online stuff. And I went and visited them over in the Isle of Wight a couple of summers ago. And as happens with Glenn, got absolutely blind drunk and missed the the hovercraft back. So I had to spend the night on his sofa. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, we've kind of been friendly since. Fantastic. So you've actually got to talk to him about uh, some of the stories and the artwork on this, but also, that, as you say, his various cover work he's done over the years. Uh, you've got some little gems and snippets about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be honest, Glenn is much more keen on silly one-liner jokes and telling you stories about random times he's met celebrities over the course of his life than talking too much about his work. But yeah, right. you, can, you can get him to talk about it sometimes. But yeah, he did. He told me that Demon Killer is is what he's most proud of. He thinks it's the best work he ever did. Um, and yeah, he mentioned about about Slain being a kind of combo of Billy Idol and Jack Nicholson in his head. Right. And I also know that his favourite page in Demon Killer is a couple of pages along from what we were talking talking about, uh, where all of the it's the are they the witches? Yes. There's kind of a big ceremony going on where they're they're throwing human organs around and there's a big stone idol in the background. He uh, yeah, he's a uh, he was especially proud of that page. I'm looking at it again now, and I'll post it when this episode comes out. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I've got a photo of him with it. Actually, I got him to pose. Oh right, <laughs> we were at the uh, at the Spanish convention. He did, did a nice little pose with the page for me. Yes, because uh, I remember you posting on the Slack group about the Spanish convention you'd uh, you'd got to, and uh, that sounds like it was pretty much a fun time as well. One of the first ones back after the lockdown, I guess. Oh uh, yeah, it's it's amazing actually. Because um, because uh, it was in Spain, Karen got in touch with me asking if I'd go along because she wasn't sure if she could if she could accompany Glenn or not. Um, she she came in the end, but yeah, so. I still went anyway, but it's um, it's in Aviles, which is right up at the top of Spain, and it's more like I know there's lots of stuff about Barcon at the moment and how you know Barcon's ruining everything for for everyone and such and such, but it's basically Barcon as a comic festival in that there's no convention center or sitting at tables with all your stuff. We'd basically just hang out outside the front of the hotel that we were all in. Uh, coffee tables having um coffees in the morning and then beers as it moved into the evening 
and fans could just kind of come up and chat to Glenn and Pepe Larraz was there and Andy Belanga and Bob Hall and a bunch of other Spanish artists. And yeah, fans could just kind of come up and get commissions, get stuff signed. We were there over like five days. And I swear this same guy came every day with about 10 different Glenn related collections. And it was always a different, oh, I'm getting these ones for my brother and these ones for my cousin and these ones for my friend. But yeah, I think he probably ended up with about 120 signed editions of Preacher and Hellblazer and Slain by the end of it all. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> amazing stuff. And was that, when the picture with that page of art, was that the original piece of art or just one from the trade? Uh, oh, no, that was just one from the trade. Right. Uh, Glenn, I think, is that uh, he sold pretty much everything as soon as he finished it. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and so great to meet him. He does, uh, he always comes across in these stories. Um, I know when Jules talks about him on the previous Slain episodes, as being just so approachable and lovely with the fans. Uh, you know, it's great to hear stories about the creators just being so involved, so friendly and approachable and, you know, willing to share their art and their stories with people. Yeah, I mean, I think Glenn, Glenn's a particularly nice guy, but he, he also, he just loves a chat, really. I think there's what you always hear stories of people who got like a commission off of him and they ended up kind of standing next to him whilst he did it for 45 minutes and chatting about like the Wimbledon final that was going on or whatever. Like he's not necessarily always, uh, always in the mood to kind of chat about the work and comics, but you can, if you can get him onto a subject that he's interested in, whether it's boxing or you know, ra- random music from the eighties and nineties, that was my main job as accompanying him at the, at the, well, I, I guess it was like a festival more than a convention was that I'd sit next to him with my phone and Spotify open. And he just kind of dictate at me the next song that he wanted me to play whilst he did his commissions and then kind of regularly turn and sing quite loudly at me, his favorite parts of the song. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, you were the official minder and Spotify consultant for, for Glenn Fabry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it. Just me kind of trying to do my best in Spanish to understand what commissions different people are asking him for and yeah then just keeping him company so Jordan at some point uh, towards the end of the demon killer story I think the last part of the demon killer story and then on to uh, Queen of Witches it becomes Dermot Power on art and mm-hmm. recently I've done an episode with Tom Stewart where we talked about the Batman Dread crossover, uh, The Ultimate Riddle. And, of course, we had the similar situation there with Dermot Power being brought in to finish it after I think Carl Critchlow was having trouble with deadlines. And I think we sort of we wondered about this with Greg Staples and the faces towards the end, perhaps not quite having the sort of detail and definition of the earlier work. Is this always one of the problems with fully painted artwork that they're going to at some point run up against that deadline wall? Yeah, I I mean, I don't know too much about how they worked it all out. I know that at the the start of the collection I've got, I think maybe it's actually in in the Slain the King collection, he mentions about kind of setting Glenn off to work kind of whilst other stuff was going on to give him a big lead time. But I can just imagine, I mean, like, because Glenn did a a cover commission for me recently, and I know how long that 
kind of took <laughs> to get. Um, so doing the painted stuff, yeah, I can kind of, I just, unless you're giving people like maybe a year lead up time, then you're just going to come up against these walls. And I know that uh, for artists, it must be very stressful anyway when you've got deadlines approaching, you're kind of having to rush just say pencils or pencils and inks. But when you're actually painting the whole thing, that must throw like a whole nother level of stress into it. And I think in, in Glenn's section, just as you, um, you get to a part where there's a bunch of horses, they're charging and there's a really cool panel of slaying kind of leaping with his ax kind of ready to chop some people, but you can see like the backgrounds aren't, there in the same way that they were earlier on maybe slain in that bottom right panel it's a bit of an odd when you compare it to the to the amazing face slain faces earlier on like that final panel on on that page looks a little bit like it's not had the same amount of time on it and you can kind of see that coming in and i would say again no disrespect to dermot power but i'd say his level is kind of the least good Glenn stuff is kind of Dermot Powers' level of painting. Right. If that's not too rude. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, that's all right. I think they bring in Dermot Power because obviously um, I guess he's a little bit faster. He's used to sort of batting cleanup, as it were, or pitching cleanup. Um, I've also heard that at this time they were moving Glenn anyway to do the Die Laughing batman dread story although again i know from woolly russell on facebook that this uh, that took an awful long time as well it took him several years to produce the artwork for i gather which we'll get to when we finally do that story on the podcast so there was i there was stuff going on i think wasn't there they were moving him around onto other projects at the same time yeah i mean i think that glenn would just tell you yourself if you asked him that he's never been a quick artist I know that he he's kind of told me that it's it's not even so much the actual doing of the art, but he spends an awful lot of time composing the page and trying to think of the coolest way to present this image. So when he was he was doing the work for me recently, like he doesn't just do a very simple kind of standard shot, like maybe a character just stood there. He's always trying to come up with an interesting way to do it. And I think that that takes so much like energy just from from putting so much effort into the thought of doing it that that tends to slow him up as well but yeah in general i mean pat says in the in the beginning of maybe even in time killer at the start there's quite nice little uh, editorials from pat at the beginning of these slain collections that i've got and he's referring to glenn as having been a slow artist back in the in the 80s when they were first doing the the black and white slain stuff. So I don't think it's a new problem. I think it's just, uh, it's just how Glenn works in general, really. Yes. And I mean, I think it is, as you say, it's not a new problem. It's a problem we're coming up against as we discuss the uh, fully painted artwork stories that appeared in the prog. Tell us a little bit about the cover commission that you got from Glenn. What did you get? Oh, um, so I wrote a series called Frank at home on the farm which right. I put through Kickstarter four issues with um, a great artist called Clark Bint. He, he's the guy on Killtopia now. He's, uh, he's, got, he's gone on to bigger and better things since, uh, since leaving me with that <laughs> um, mammoth of a Kickstarter series. Uh, but we got picked up by Scout. 
Scout Comics over in America. So it went, so the series went into into all comic shops, but Scout are quite um, they're easy going with with you also doing your own crowdfunded stuff at the same time. Like so, once all the issues had come out. Um, I wanted to do like a hardcover collection of the series as I'm a bit of a fiend for those hardcover omnibuses and all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of went off and did that by myself on Kickstarter. And like I said, like Glenn's always been my favorite cover artist. So uh, he did a really beautiful wraparound cover for this hardcover collection that we've done. Oh, right. Okay. Yes, I don't know. You may have seen it online. It's got a giant kind of pig. So the the comic itself is about uh, just after World War One. Guy comes home from war. All his family are missing from their farm, and there's only the animals left. And it kind of slowly gets weirder and weirder from there. And a kind of uh, shining slash David Lynch, David Cronenberg kind of thing. So you get some kind of animals transforming and becoming kind of horrible half human half animal creatures and so there's a great big horrible pig head that goes across the double spread and then then you've got some beautifully rendered kind of characters filling up the rest of the space but even again on that like i've worked with a fair few kind of like quite big name artists and i've always had good work from people but you can kind of tell when they're doing something for just as a commission for a project they don't really know anything about when maybe they're working on bigger books for Marvel and stuff the rest of the time and they'll do you something really nice, but it will be kind of quite simple maybe compared to when you know that they're doing something uh, where they're absolutely going to town on it. But even like Glenn doing this cover for me, like the amount of detail and rendering is insane. Like the whole background's all done and there's these giant leafy trees that spread out across the whole double spread. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's a pretty incredible piece. But yeah, it, did, it did take quite a while of, uh, of chasing Glenn after we made the commission to, to get it. But we got there in the end. Fantastic. I've got the black and white uh, version of that up in front of me now. And as you say, the level of detail on there is just stunning, isn't it? Uh, he really went to town. On oh, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, we'll talk a little bit about that comic in a minute. And let's take you back to Demon Killer. I'm going to guess that we're going to say that uh, the Glenn Fabry sections uh, are the best of the book and probably the pick of the artist. Would that be right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's some beautiful bits by Dermot Power, especially when um, he's kind of just got a big figure shot to do. I think there's one of... um, of Elphick coming back and looking pretty impressive in all his glory. But yeah, it, it definitely looks like the the slightly more simplified rendering when Glenn was running out of time as opposed to the the full really going for full detail and full background render in every page that we got at the start of Demon Killer. Right. Well, let's let's play the Grail page game. Let's give you all of this wonderful painted artwork. Um Pick a couple of pages or covers to hang on your wall in the virtual art gallery with your name under them. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spent quite a long time going through and thinking about this. And it's quite a tough book, I think, to do it with in that there are, I guess, like probably what would be like the obvious standout page would be that one of um, Slain and Ucko just after they've gone down the cauldron as it's a nice big kind of sp- splash page of your two main characters together. 
Uh, and I mentioned already as well that I, I am quite a fan of that vanilla ice getting punched in the face just because I think it's a funny story. <laughs> but, um, but a lot of the, like, it's a kind of a book where I go through and I can just see so many, like, beautiful individual panels that I really love. So it's quite hard to kind of, like, um, land on one. But I imagine if you had the actual art page, it's it's been tidied up with the borders and things. Like, I've seen how Glenn works with um, painted work. Like, uh, he did a heavy metal cover for their, like, 3,000th issue or 300th issue or something. Uh, and I saw the original to that. So I know that the paint kind of goes everywhere around the borders. So I'm thinking that page that I said to you that I really liked with the the really cool slain expression on it yeah where he's he's killing the romans would be really beautiful if you had the original with kind of all the the paint kind of spreading out into the borders you've also got a bit of echo down there on the bottom which would be important for me in terms of choosing a a grail page i definitely want um want echo on there so i think i'd probably settle on that one although that overall section of the book's really beautiful where you first get slain killing the caesareans and you go over to the witches on the mounds of gold and stuff. There's some absolutely incredible, the design of the, the witches with the candles on their head and the, the leaf kind of headdresses. Yeah. I think uh, are also amazing. But yeah, I'd settle, I'd settle on the one that with the, the awesome slain expression. Cool. Well, I will. Uh, well, obviously, we we'll give you those in the virtual art gallery. I'll post these on all, on all the socials when the episode comes out, so people can see what we're talking about. You're quite right. That section of Demon Killer, those few pages, each one of those pages should be hanging in an art gallery somewhere, shouldn't they? Um, and I hope they are. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. I know Glenn's always complaining to me about how cheap he always sold everything. So right. <laughs> some, I think someone probably got very lucky and has a beautiful uh, collection of slain demon killer somewhere. If you're on the digital collection like I am, look at page 49 for uh, Jordan's main grail. Page. No, I'm, I'm physical. Yeah, I'm, I'm physical. I'm afraid. Which which one? So on the digital, your your main page, it's forty nine. The digital issue, but also if you go back two uh-huh. pages from that, I'm going to pick the yeah. sort of salmon leap of Slade. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's got a panel mm-hmm. of echo because, as you say, you want to be of echo on the page. I quite like the sort of three panels at the top as well of Slade mm-hmm. in action, and then the bottom panel of him doing his leap, kicking the helmet off a Roman um, soldier. And the movement, the anatomy, the colours. So that's going to be my grail page. But as I say, I'll post all these. When Those background colours are stunning. It is amazing, Those isn't it? background colours yeah. on that one are beautiful, aren't they? Like That's where I think um, I don't necessarily get on board with some of Pat Mill's complaints about the slightly unusual, vibrant colouring. Because I, I just think some of that stuff works so well. And yeah, the top three panels, they almost look like something that you'd find in some kind of medieval tapestry or exactly or exactly like, like from, that. The, from yeah. like a renaissance period or something like that yeah absolutely fantastic and on the previous page slain has just emerged from the water and oh it's just yeah those pages are just um, each one is just stunning uh yeah 
Great stuff, Jordan. Well, shall we say that uh, Slain Demon Killer, the fifth volume in the collections, is available in paperback currently. At the moment, I think it's a bargain, £7.49 from the 2000 AD web store or 9 99 digitally. I think it's on special offer at the moment, possibly in the run-up to their Christmas, I think. Uh, but yeah, look out for it at the moment. It's highly recommended. And the middle section with the, uh, the Glenn Fabry stuff is just spectacular. Oh Yeah, it's worth the entry price just for that alone. I did it. I had one thing that I thought of when I was going through all of it. This is a bit outside of the story, but I was wondering what you thought on this. So they call the Romans Caesarians uh, after kind of Caesar and such. But also, obviously, you have like a Caesarian birth, yep. which in Macbeth is like how the whole thing with um, the whole born trick, of woman yes. yep. comes no man out. Born of woman, yeah. yeah, and so do you think that that's intentional the fact that they're so, because obviously a lot of slain is about the goddess and kind of the female empowerment and how following kind of female leaders is is the better way than the kind of the violence and the lack of connection of nature that the males often have or the male-led societies. Do you think there's any kind of connection there that Pat was going for with always referring to the Romans as caesareans and the connection to a caesarean birth kind of being a, a loophole for not having been actually born of woman. Well, it was interesting because I've not come across that phrase being used to describe Roman soldiers anywhere else so far, apart from here. And I think, you know, from reading Kiss My Axe, uh, I, you're quite right. Pat has quite a lot to say about female empowerment, female figures in mythology. So there may be something there about the link to the idea of Macbeth, as you say, of no woman born. Um, Yeah, I think Pat Mills is doing it deliberately, and you're quite right. There is something about this and something about what he's saying about the Roman invaders and and the power of Boudicca and so on, who, as you say, does become slightly, in my mind as well, confused with the goddess as the the story progresses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. but yeah, interesting. Interesting choice of uh, phrase or of name for them from Pat Mills. Just because I'd say overall the kind of the the theme of Slain is is pretty much a, a battle between following kind of female goddesses and that are in touch with nature and the more destructive male gods. Like you've got obviously like the Crom Crunch and the Horned God, and they're all quite male seeming entities and. Yeah, I guess if I had to put kind of one theme that really rides through a, through a lot of slain, it would be that. So I just thought that was an interesting choice on his part. Yeah, okay, very interesting stuff. Uh, as ever, Pat got has got lots of stuff in there for us to read and to think about. And then, of course, we get the beautiful painted artwork to look at and just, uh, you know, revel in its splendours. Great stuff. I should also mention, of course, Kiss My Axe, which is Pat's latest volume of sort of uh, memoirs and uh, recollections of the creation of Slain and the the various different stories, is now available digitally for a fiver from uh, on the Kindle and so on. I'm guessing that there's a hard copy coming at some point, which I know a lot of people are waiting for, um, that that will be out eventually. I think he said on Twitter. Yeah, 
that that's coming. That's yeah, coming. The digital's come out first. Yeah. So that is available as well, and is well worth a read uh, to find out, you know, um, a lot of the stuff that Pat was talking about and thinking about um, with this spectacular sort of ongoing saga that he wrote for 2000 AD, and I guess has now concluded as well. Yeah, as far as I know, he said he's he's that's kind of what the book's about, isn't it? Kind of he's finished. He's done the yes. tales of slain, and the book's kind of the capper on the whole thing. Great stuff, Jordan. So let's turn to um, guest projects. Tell us about then Quarantine Comic and also Frank on the Farm and where we can get them from. Um, Yes. So, well, Frank, as I said, is out through Scout Comics. So um, any kind of comic store, you can get the trade. The trade collection's out now if you just want the standard soft cover. Uh, I finished the the Frank kind of fancy passion project hardcover collection with the Glenn Fabry variant cover a few weeks. Well, I guess the Kickstarter finished um, about six or seven weeks ago, but we're just sending that off to print now. But um, I've got a another Kickstarter starting as I'm just <laughs> in the constant loop between finishing off the Kickstarter and starting a new one um, starting in a few weeks for a series I do called Weird Work with Shaky Kane, who's another old 2000 AD alumni. Uh, I think he did, He did. was it Judge Planet that Shaky did? Uh, that rings a bell, yes. I think it's with Cy Spencer. I think yeah. he was a writer on that. But yeah, Shaky mainly, Shaky's famous for kind of Deadline. He was a big part of that that series, uh, that, that magazine when that was out. But, um, but yeah, we're doing this series together. But so when that Kickstarter goes live in the first week of November, I'm not sure. Not sure when you're releasing this. So we'll this be will be out uh, on the 21st of November. So yes, when this episode is is out, yeah, we'll definitely be be up and running. Be up and running on uh, on Weird Work Two. And now that Kickstarter has put in this handy add-ons option, you can kind of get all of my old my old stuff so you'll be able to get the the glenn variant version of the hardback from frank on there as an add-on uh quarantine which yeah so i did that with loads of the the small press guys that people probably who listen to your show and listen to the awesome pod will know people like russell mark olsen gustavo vargas martin simpson clara meath um alex moore craig patton uh, so it's a different artist on every page, but one story kind of inspired by us all being locked in our apartments for a long period of time, but without all the the grim uh, virus part of it. Uh, so, yeah, that will be available as an add-on. And, and weird work in general is like if LA Confidential was set in the world of Futurama. So it's a kind of a hard-boiled noir story with lots of different threads and things going back decades in in the history of the crime and the politicians in the world. But with Shaky Kane drawing it, it's kind of like a collection of bizarre, weird, multicolored characters. It's, he's, a, he's a very Kirby-inspired artist. 
Fantastic. Uh, yes, I've seen some of his Kirby-inspired pieces um, over the years. Uh, but yeah, okay, so when this episode comes out at the end of November, check the show notes uh, or go to megacitybookclub.com and you will find links to all of Jordan's Kickstarters where you can track down all of this work that we've been talking about. And I'll put all the links in the show notes as well, Jordan. Awesome. Thank you very much, Seamus. And where can people find you um, if they want to go directly and get in touch? Uh, so on Twitter, I'm Jordan underscore J underscore Thomas. And on Instagram, I'm ampersand1988. So yeah, you can get in touch with me there. I'm always happy to kind of chat about whatever when it comes to comics and stuff and yeah if you're after the the kickstarter things i think you can just search my name jordan thomas on kickstarter and like follow my profile and that way you get notifications when anything goes live as the the glenn fabry variant we did we're we're doing just a limited run of like around 200 copies and we're not going to reprint that so there's only going to be around kind of 80 or so left when the next kickstarter goes live so if you're a big Glenn fan and you want to get one of those, then um, then yeah, it's kind of good to jump on early. And as you say, the detailed uh, black and white art he's done for the uh, the hardback version is looks just gorgeous. Uh, who's doing the colours yeah, on and it? And that's re. Uh, so that's been inked and coloured by Edward Bentley, right? Who um, he does a, he does a series called Dark Boy and Adler, and um, he worked with Dave Cook on Vessels and yeah, he's he's been around for a fair while. So it was a bit, it was quite an interesting process because it would have obviously been amazing to have Glenn paint the whole cover, would have kind of been the dream. But in terms of time and the other projects Glenn had on, it just wasn't possible for him to paint it. Uh, and so Glenn, Glenn doesn't ink himself anymore. He just does the, he does this kind of gray tone pencil. Yeah. And I think in terms of it, that's quite hard to color. So, so what we did was we had Ed then, then ink that and, uh, and color it. But yeah, I think it's come out really beautifully. And uh, we used a system where after Glenn, uh, after Ed went in and inked Glenn's work, we then relayered the pencils back on top. So all of the kind of pencil marks and everything is still are still there. But anyway, well, people will be able to see a picture of the the fully coloured version. But we've also got the, the original pencils are printed on a double spread inside the collection as well. Fantastic. And I'm just looking at your Kickstarter page now, and I note your comment underneath his pencils. You just say, "Oh lordy," uh, which is about <laughs> it sums it up as to how good that is. Yeah. He, well, I got them as well. Actually, I've got the I've got the originals You've here, got which the I'm original. getting framed. I can imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I do. Is that the only piece of Glen art that you own yourself? Uh, yeah, it is. Um... I don't know, like I don't know what people kind of know about what Glenn's been up to, but he he worked a lot with um, Duncan Jones. Oh right, um, yes, the director. Yeah, I do a So I don't know if you know. Yeah, but uh, Glenn was actually doing an adaption of Mute. I don't know. You know that it's been on Netflix now as yes. a film, but originally Duncan couldn't get the money to make Mute as a film, and Glenn was drawing it for him as a comic. And the original art of that is absolutely stunning. But yeah, he's, I guess he's mainly been 
been working with Duncan on quite a lot of projects like that and then private commissions and a few covers. But as I said, he's kind of, uh, he already sold all of like the Preacher covers, the Hellblazer covers, all of his slain work. So, uh, so yeah, I kind of, I've got my original from Glenn for my own thing, but uh, yeah, probably anything else I'd have to track down whoever was lucky enough to grab one of those absolutely classic Hellblazer covers. That'd probably be where I'd save all my pennies for. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, they are fantastic. His sort of detailed close-up faces are just wonders, aren't they? Yeah, there's a classic Hellblazer one that's just a headshot of John Constantine. Like looking, I think the thing with Glenn's work that always amazes me is how it's like both realistic but looks kind of terrifying yeah. <laughs> as well. It's like a strange mixture of having, it's like stylized realism, if that makes sense. It always looks like there's some awful monster underneath the skin of his characters waiting to kind of rip off all of the flesh and come out. And of course, some of them are literal monsters, but none of them look like the sort of people you want to meet outside of pub on a Saturday night, really, do they? They uh, they all have that terrifying air. To no, them. no, I yeah. don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Great stuff, Jordan. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Slane and sharing your stories about Glenn. Uh, one of the, obviously one of the most friendly and approachable artists. Uh, from the galaxy's greatest comic that we've talked about over the years because such great stories um, from him and about him. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Eamon. It's been a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of the show. I tend to only, like, I listen to ones once I've read stuff and I've been going on my own little 2000 AD voyage with Slane and I've got loads of the Judge Dredd case files, but um, all of the Slane stuff you've done, all of the the kind of special episodes on stuff that people did outside of it, whether it's um, Grant Morrison or the Steve Dillon episode and uh, and your podcast with your daughter on Sandman has also been keeping me company as I've been working through the Sandman omnibuses. So you've been doing a fantastic job. Oh, thank you, George. entertained during <laughs> the last kind of year or so. Good. And that's the way to do it. Listen to the episodes after you've read the book. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Great stuff. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, follow the podcast on Twitter, Spotify, Facebook, Instagram, the 2000 AD forums, or go directly to my website at megacitybookclub.com. We'll take you there, where you'll also find all the links to all of Jordan's projects that we've been discussing. Um, or if you want to get in touch, email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. If you've got a book that you want to come on the show and talk about, or if you just want to uh, send comments and suggestions that would be great so that'll do us until next time when we're passing judgment on another great comic it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me 